Section 9 of the Centurions. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Centurions by Biagi. Chapter 9. Urged by curiosity, we traveled steadily night and day. Saunders scanned the heavens nightly for a reappearance of the brilliant globes and incidentally his star, but discovered nothing except the atmosphere was gradually clearing and the filmy twilight heralded a beautiful crescent moon whose silvery mystic rays pierced the lifting northern vapors. Sparse vegetation greeted us as we advanced and we ran across an odd stunted plant bearing a beautiful crimson blossom which threw out a sickly sweet odor and shriveled up turning black the instant it was plucked. These vivid blossoms dotted the snow desert profusely as the climate grew warmer. We halted upon the crest of a hill to survey the surrounding country, which was almost submerged in a thick, floating blue mist. But gradually, this vapor sea lifted, compact like a monstrous lid, and we viewed a vast expanse of velvety whiteness. But beyond, far, far beyond, though real, we feasted our eyes upon the loveliest country God ever created. We cheered the beautiful scene and marveled at the stupendously lofty mountains whose azure peaks pierced the clouds. Vast plains and valleys stretched wide, crossed and recrossed with serpentine silvery lines, and to the west, glimmering white, expansive, was a great body of water, an ocean. Through the glasses, the mountains showed up, thickly covered with forest, a glorious, verdant land, richly seamed with sparkling streams, a wondrous land shading into golden lights, a paradise, superb centauri. Before we could look our fill upon this lovely promise of the future, the thick vapors descended, veiling all. In our eagerness, we went off our feet, consequently gained mightily in speed. Soon we cleared the polar mists. The evenings grew deeper, darker. The stars shone brilliantly, startlingly near and large. Then one night, toward the death hour of twelve, far in the east a strange opaline light slowly glided into view. A pearl-shaped disk, lusterless like a monster pearl, of a pale pink mystic color. High in the heavens it sailed. Saunders had at last discovered his star. He pointed to it, pale, trembling, vainly striving to control his emotion. It is at full, he murmured, pinkish-hued, egg-shaped, as I insisted, contrary to all scientific statements, gentlemen, behold, the planet Virgilius. We gave three cheers for the planet Virgilius. Saunders and myself both gloried in the name of Virgilius. We knew the old boy was happy and congratulated him, then viewed the mystery through the telescope. It rose higher, glimmering in pale splendor, weird, unnatural as it flared in uncanny pinkish light without sparkle or brilliancy. Through the telescope, the belated star was a disappointment. Partially obscured in spiral nebula, it appeared to be in the liquid state, yet at intervals flared clear, revealing vertical bars of piercing phosphorus light. Saunders launched into a learned, very scientific explanation, which the discussive Sheldon prolonged far into the night. The planet Virgilius was a stellar apparition a solar phenomenon, and the farther south we advanced, the more vivid 
with the rose-light glow. Nine moons circled this singular planet, which revolved through space in the same sphere directly opposite our solar globe. Saunders lectured volubly, but the learned atmosphere evaporated the instant he and Sheldon attempted an estimate of the distance between the planet Virgilius and Earth. Sachs joined in the argument, shouting, Unfathomable! When the noise quieted, I mildly suggested the dull-hued star might possibly be a moon. This startling announcement, after Saunders' deep explanations, actually deprived my friends of speech, and I hurriedly explained my reasons for condemning the great planet Virgilius to the zodiacal insignificance of a moon, and a mighty little moon at that. I blundered along as people will who grapple with a subject too heavy for them. But Saunders seemed overwhelmed at my brilliancy. Sachs scowled frightfully, and Sheldon played peekaboo. I grew caloric. Though my knowledge of astronomy was certainly limited, my theory concerning the pink flickering star was as rational as theirs, and so I frankly told them. They laughingly agreed, and Sachs called the argument off, yawningly reminding us it was long past midnight, and suggested we turn in and rest the few remaining hours of darkness. Overwearied from the long day's march, restlessly I tossed, enviously listening to the measured breathing of my slumbering comrades and vaguely turning over in my mind the advisability of rising. I was determined to rise, though occasional lapses of memory made it difficult to resume thinking about it precisely where I left off. Still, with heroic efforts, I managed to strive along till quite suddenly I drowsily wondered why I worried so much over nothing in particular. I had been dozing, but a short time, it seemed, when slightly roused by a vague, uneasy, persistent impression something unusual was going on. Dreamily, I became aware of stealthy movements and whispers within the car, and, believing it was morning, sleepily wondered what the fuss was about. But my eyes flew wide as a hand suddenly grasped my shoulder, gently shaking me, and Sachs bent over, his fingers upon his lips. Get up, he whispered. We're surrounded. Surrounded by what? I gasped. I don't know, he answered. They look like men, inhabitants of this side. Get up. I sprang from my bunk. My three friends were armed to the teeth and prepared for the worst. Sheldon stood upon a packing box, peeking through the ventilator, and beckoned me up beside him. He edged away, giving me his place, and I looked upon a remarkable scene. We were surrounded. A band of men, numbering over a hundred, stood in groups or tramped around the car, silent, all intently watching the windows. Great swarthy fellows of magnificent physique, delicate featured as the East Indian. What made Sachs doubt they were men? Enormous horned dogs were harnessed to many odd-looking conveyances. In one, seated among luxurious furs, 
a man rested whose piercing eyes never wandered from the car. Occasionally he gave an order, and from the alert attitude and obsequious manner of the others, I judged he was their chief. Suddenly he raised his eyes to the ventilator and gazed straight into mine. He seemed to smile. I caught a flash of white teeth as I sank from view. Sheldon laughed at my precipitancy. One of them spied me, I gasped. That's nothing, he assured me. That fellow in the sleigh has spied every one of us in turn. You're the last. By this time, I guess he's aware of the number of our band. Then he buoyed us up by elegantly expressing his belief that we'd about reached the last coil and advised us to wiggle around and find out what the tribe outside wanted. He couldn't understand why the savages didn't attack us. Sachs braced up and declared he would step out and inquire what he could do for the dusky boys. To avoid argument, he unbarred the door at once, and we all trooped out to the platform. Our sudden appearance startled the strangers, who stared in round-eye wonder, while the man in the sleigh sprang out and hurried forward, scanning us with the liveliest interest. We were not behind in that, but nodded, he responding with a sweeping bow. Sachs held out his hand, and the other grasped and shook it heartily, then glanced, smiling at us. We nodded again in our friendliest manner. The whole band saluted. By George, the relief party after all, Sheldon muttered. The leader indulged in graceful pantomime, pointing to the north, indicating he knew we came from there, and apparently he considered we had accomplished a wonderful feat. He pressed his hand to his heart, and saluting, waved toward the south, from which we inferred he had appointed himself our escort. And if everything was as agreeable as appearances, then we had struck clover. Sachs thanked the gentleman in English. The chief threw out his hands and looked anxious. Sachs tried again in German, then Italian, French, Spanish, and finally in Latin. Our dusky friend listened attentively, seeming to catch at a word or two of the Latin, then replied in the most musical language I ever heard, similar to Latin. But we were all Latin scholars and could not understand a word. We invited him to enter the car. He complied graciously, first giving orders to his men, which they obeyed with alercity, and sleighs and dogs were prepared for action. We shall feature as the chief attraction at a barbecue murmured Sheldon as the car began moving, jolting fearfully with the unaccustomed rapidity. Depend on it, he continued. That old tomcat over there is purring till the ripe moment. Then presto, the world will come to an end. The swift motion of the car and the thought of the tremendous advance we were making inclined to me to be skeptical of Sheldon's barbecue, though possibly he was correct. Sachs was doing his level best to make himself understood to the Tomcat, who in turn was equally anxious to be understood and seemed greatly astonished at everything he saw in the car. After a while, he managed to convey to us two important facts, to wit, his name was Patololi, chief of the Patololi tribes, and we were 600 years behind the times. 
Nonsense. He's making sport of us, muttered Sheldon, who was busy brewing his favorite coffee. Six hundred years behind the times, are we? I'll wager he never tasted coffee. Sachs declared the Latin we spoke was a mutilation of the language, that this savage had mastered the Latin of perfection. And the savage proceeded to teach us this perfect language and made rapid strides in the difficulties of our mutilation. He traveled with us nearly three weeks and was good company, hilarious but thoroughly vicious and unprincipled. He sang ribald songs that I wondered at my daring in mentioning them, and his sentiments towards the fair sex betrayed the savage. I flushed at the way he alluded to the ladies. He considered them without soul or value, and frankly told us when he and his people renounced all that was delightful, then civilization would welcome them. To efface this savage condition, the gentleman informed us, will take centuries. Till then, bah. Evidently, the Patolis did not desire civilization. Patoli had an extremely cultivated palate and delighted in preparing and introducing many peculiar dishes at our meals. An epicure he may have been, but we certainly were far his superiors when it came to cooking, and politely refused to take part in any of his messes. In return, he rated our food as abominable, but Sheldon's coffee made him blink. In compliment, we made strenuous overtures to his wine, which had the appearance of water, and a bouquet divine. It put fire in our veins, courage in our hearts, and we existed in the confidence that only the mighty enjoy. We were soon familiar enough with Patoli's language to question him regarding the new land we were entering. We learned scientists were exploring the northern heavens when startled by thousands of varied-colored sparks belching from the earth. They hastened back to headquarters and informed their colleagues who flashed the news to various observatories and triumphantly published the report throughout Centauri. This aroused controversy and much speculation concerning the brilliant signals, and the following evening four different scientific societies sailed to the north in hopes of viewing the remarkable streams of light. Atmospheric experimenters and learned astronomers are continually invading the northern regions. Their aim is to circle the moon. Patoli informed us. Ten years ago, the inhabitants of the moon signaled to us. When the moon was at full, a broad stream of vivid light issued from her heart, illuminating the heavens. The phenomenon arose widespread discussion among the scientific societies throughout the country, the chief excitement being not one new more than the other. Peace came only with the waning of the moon, which absorbed the brilliant stream, and the signal never flashed again. Since that time, plans have been formed, experiments made, volumes written, all with a view to circling the moon. In what? I gasped. Balloons, muttered Sachs. I told you they were balloons, and that ninny over there, indicating Saunders, declared they were planets, bless my soul. Totally shrugged his shoulders. He had become accustomed to our interruptions and patiently waited till we ended our side talk, then continued without answering my question. The four societies wonderingly witnessed the northern phenomenon. As the narrow ribbons of fire shot upward, bursting into thousands of bright huge sparks, these wise men concluded it was a signal of some sort, 
and claimed they responded. Then hurriedly returned and reported to the centaurians, who communicated with and solicited aid of the Patolales, the most northern tribe in the universe. We are thoroughly familiar with these regions up to a certain degree. Beyond that, we dare not venture. Though we have a legend that centuries ago, a sturdy Patolale dared into the unknown and safely reached the other side. He encountered a strange wild race, became their chief and founder of the Patoli tribes over there. It is doubtful, as are all legends, but it adds distinction to the Patolales and enrages the Otraganus, with whom we are at war. They are legendless. Our instructions were, if we discovered anything, to return with it or with news without delay. Our reward will be a piece of land we have coveted for over half a century. The scientific societies are regarded with respect, awe, and have a wide and popular hearing, but little reliance is placed upon their reports. They are continually discovering something that, upon investigation, refuses to be discovered, and in this instance I believe the learned ones themselves are doubtful whether they saw all they claim they did. Otherwise, all Centauri would have accompanied us north. The scientists described the phenomenon, stated the degree they sailed in, and hazarded a guess as to the latitude the lights blazed in. Navigators of the clouds are always hazy on distance. With this meager information, we started out upon the search, constantly fearing the signal lights would flash beyond our sphere and force us to abandon them. The vapors of the ice world congeals in our lungs, and the end. We had been out scarcely a week when very abruptly we came across an odd-looking car with four men inside very sound asleep. We were astonished to so soon discover the phenomenon, while the little battered car increased our wonder. It is a fair imitation of the one in Center, said to have been in use 600 years ago. Center is the city of Centauri. You people are the same complexion as the Centaurians. We knew of the continent on the other side of the globe, its wide civilization and perpetual progression. Science revealed all this to us, but it was reserved for the Patolales to discover that Centauri is six centuries in advance of the other side. This car and contents are rare antiquities and of fabulous value. Have you any savages on your side, such as the Patolale and his tribe? We considered Patoli about as clever as a rascal as ever existed. Savages of his caliber were not a rarity on our side, but what a sensation he would create in our land with his Herculean physique, flashing eyes, glib tongue, and cruel, brilliant intellect. His reason was tumultuous, ruling for strife, war. It riled Sachs that his invention had been produced six centuries ago, and proudly, with long explanations, he displayed the handsomely engraved plan of the lost Propellier. Patoli turned aside to hide his mirth. We were a continual source of amusement to him. But he became deeply interested in Sheldon's map of the world and marveled much at the injured, disjointed instruments belonging to Saunders' impaired collection. He examined the remaining telescope with great curiosity informing us it was patterned after antiquated astronomical curios in the museum. Saunders reared and came back with that it was a moderately good telescope. Could not compare with those blown up in the explosion, 
but it had been of invaluable service to him in his labors. Then he swerved upon his favorite topic and began to bleat of the great planet Virgilius. Patoli roared and begged us to wait till we reached the centurions. But remember, he cried, gazing at us with sudden respect, though we have six hundred years the advantage, you have accomplished what is beyond us. The centurions will go mad and receive you as gods. We gazed at this man who called himself a savage and apprehensively wondered what the centurions were like. Gradually, thankfully, we emerged from the ice wilderness where for months we had miserably wandered and under Patoli's guidance made a wide detour to avoid a chain of lakes which seemingly divided the pole regions from the living world. We crossed a low range of hills blocking the way to a sloping valley thinly mantled with snow, which melted to slush beneath a burning sun. The temperature changed completely. This wide marsh freed us entirely from the ice, snow, and deadly northern vapors, leading us to a rich, verdant, luxuriant country, a wonderful country whose lofty, snow-capped mountains, velvet-mantled in soft green, reared sharply in the clear atmosphere of deep azure, and Patolili impulsively threw out his arms, murmuring, The potency of God is sublime. He is the universe. Yet, with this loveliness before us, half regretfully, we glanced back at the mist-enveloped frozen world, gleaming white, shadowy, mystic, beautiful, so beautiful, at a distance. We traveled over vast prairies, wide trackless, where herds of wild horses galloped, over rich meadow land where sheep and cattle grazed in countless numbers. We rested in fertile valleys, ripe with fields of promise, swaying yellow seas of grain, and finally entered a deep, odorous, wooden country, abundant with wild fruit and vegetation. The refreshing splash of rushing waters guided us to the bank of a clear, sparkling stream, and heedless of Patoli's warning concerning chills, we plunged in for a long-needed swim. We sported like schoolboys. Our spirits rose. We grew boisterous. The swim revived and freed our bodies from all tired aches. Saunders declared we had at last discovered the river of life, whose source springs from the inexhaustible wells of my great body of fresh water, Sheldon added. We guide him unmercifully, but he answered good-naturedly, and the cool green-shaded wood rang with our shouts. Sax felt so frisky, he started a song in terrible bass. We joined in the chorus and traveled some distance before it dawned upon us, Patoli did not approve of our noise, though occasionally he smiled sympathetically. He looked worried, was unusually silent, and his manner, also that of his men, appeared very uneasy. He had sent little bands ahead to reconnoiter, and all sharply watched hedges and thicket, and jumped at every sound. Finally, Patoli told us we would very soon have to part company. We are nearing the Otragana Reservation, he explained. Possibly, you may have to travel a few miles alone. Follow the riverbank. It leads direct to Latonia. But you'll reach the Otraganas first. They're on the lookout for you and will present to you the Centaurians and attempt to claim the discovery. I have sent a messenger ahead, over the mountains, and before you fall in with this savage tribe, the Centaurians will know the northern streams of light heralded the arrival of four wise men from the other side. 
From the disdainful way Patololi mentioned the Otraganus, we concluded they ranked rather low in the advanced civilization of this side and believed we were about to encounter the genuine, everyday savage of our world. Sax got his box of beads handy. Consequently, we suggested to Patololi to remain with us and personally hand over his discovery to the Centaurians. Patoli coughed slightly and declined our suggestion, informing us his escort ended at the frontier of the Otragana Reservation, a formidable but cowardly tribe, with whom at present he was at war. Bands of both tribes were continually meeting in conflict, and he considered us safer without him. These wretched savages would have seized you long ago, he added, but fear us and dare not venture beyond the limit of their own land. The cause of the present war? Women. Old Octragana very conveniently died recently, and the young devil was proclaimed chief. His first act was for war. He seized my daughter, who is the most beautiful thing ever created. He imprisoned her and forced her to become his bride. Women willingly mated to the Otraganus are outcasts. Those forced into unions are martyrs. My daughter is a martyr. What a fate. I will kill Otragana on sight. We murmured sympathy. Patololi suddenly seemed greatly cast down, though his gaiety while traveling with us would never lead one to believe he had just lost a beautiful daughter. Yes, he continued, they have gone too far. They are progressing, becoming bolder, but I will exterminate them. That is their fate. For two centuries we have been warring with these people for this same offense. They will pilfer us of our women. The Otraganus are doomed. We shall overcome and command them. It cannot be otherwise. We are more advanced, more civilized, more numerous. War must cease, but existence can revel in superb tranquility only when humanity has mastered the divine wisdom to thoroughly control all emotions. Then is perfect civilization attained. But passion damns the universe to everlasting savagery. The Centaurians, he informed us, were at one time divided into many tribes, speaking different languages and being unable to understand each other, would go to war on that account. They declared war at the least provocation, then prolonged it because pride, honor, or fear of losing prestige with other nations was at stake. They would dispute about the depth of the ocean, then go to war over it. Whether the other side of the earth was inhabited was always a good incentive. Then powerful tribes would discover a weaker one had in their possession vast fields of production, or perhaps a neck of land, skirting their own rich in metal gems, and wars declared with the avowed intention of exterminating the weaker foe, simply to enrich themselves. Sometimes these plans miscarried, and the weaker foe became enriched. This was savagery beyond our conception. These wars of avarice brought the downfall of the nations. Today they number but one, the Centaurians, a rich and powerful tribe. The Centauri reservation extends over the whole of this portion of the globe. They speak one language and have named the universe after themselves. Their chief is revered as sublime and is a descendant of the founder of the Centauris, who, it is claimed, fell from the star bearing that name. They are a grand, godlike race, having reached the zenith of perfect civilization, yet still possess one uncontrollable passion, an irreverent desire for knowledge. 
They would ride the heavens, visit the moon and stars, yet dare not explore the other side of their own little planet. Oh, Centauri, Centauri, roared Patoli derisively. Four men, their own color, yet still in the savage state. He laughed. Have accomplished what Centauri is still dreaming of, but the superiority of a superb people will acknowledge and praise your daring, a true savage, jealous doubts and jeers. I worship the Centaurians. The men are gods. The women, ah, he clasped his hands, sighing voluptuously. The women are divine. Fourteen hours later, we parted from Patololi. You are entering the Otragana domain, he told us. I am sad at parting, but we shall meet again. Good luck. We could not let him or his men depart without some little token of our esteem. This regard deeply affected them. Sachs presented a canoe to Patoli. He was delighted with the gift. The canoes had attracted his attention above everything else in the car. He had never seen one before. I created a sensation by distributing money. Patoli informed me the museum contained many of these rare, valuable coins. Sachs cautioned me to preserve my gold, and he became very stingy with his beads. Patoli had curiously examined Sachs's collection of beads, but preferred the canoe because it could not be found in the museum. The beads, however, were there in every variety and were priceless. They were relics of an extinct age. Patoli embraced us and bestowed upon Sachs a most peculiar ring of dull coral red metal. The width of the ring reached the first joint of the finger and was ornamented with a diamond whose least value in our country would have reached four figures. It flashed a steel blue glint. We learn later this magnificent gem was a production of man. The Centaurians had discovered the secret of the diamond. End of section 9. Read by Picasso Loco.